Well, welcome back to 2022 and Decarb Connects podcast. I can't believe it's actually nearly the end of January and this is the first time that I'm sitting down in front of a microphone and a guest, but very happy to be here with Nick Fulford, who is Senior Director of Energy Transition at Gaffney Klein. So Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. And our kind of theme for today, we're going to sort of explore a few different things, but the core theme is what could drive North American industry to invest in net zero? And before we kind of dig into that specific question, let's do some scene setting. Maybe you could just explain a little bit about you and your background. Your, I mean, the, the headline is uh, a transplant from the UK in Houston. So you have that kind of interesting transatlantic perspective on a on a, a different market, a different country, but uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more. Yeah, thanks, Alex. So, uh, yeah, I'm very much a, a product of, of the UK for the first 40 odd years of my life. Um, and um, I kind of grew up with uh, the sort of um, developments that, that British gas followed through with the kind of global gas expansion and becoming very much kind of an international company. So, a lot of my international experience was with them and subsequently joining uh, Gap Decline eight years ago, um, it's given me a chance to travel even further afield and look at a number of very interesting projects around the world. So really, I suppose two to three years ago, it became clear that um, for the natural gas sector in particular, um, the sort of decarbonization and carbon intensity were becoming a bigger and bigger thing. And as a result, a lot of the advisory work that I've done with Gappy Klein has uh, sort of pivoted gradually towards um, the carbon side of things. And over the last 18 months, probably 80% of what I've done has been around various forms of decarbonization. Um, to some extent, you know, starting with the gas industry, particularly exports from uh, LNG exports from the US, where carbon intensity has become so important. But more generally, um, into the realms of uh, other industries and uh, looking at how to uh, deal with um, carbon removal and sequestration or use. So it's, it's been an interesting journey. And for, for those, I mean, I think most people, certainly within oil and gas and the industrial sectors, no Gaffney Klein, but for our, our broader audience, what's the sweet spot of, of Gaffney Klein's focus these days? Obviously, you're, you're right in the heart of their CCUS and, and, and carbon management programme. Anything that you'd like to add about the lens that Gaffney Klein brings to this? I think um, the, the way I would characterise Gaffney Klein is that, um, you know, there's about 75 of us globally. Um, London's the biggest office, uh, Houston, Singapore, and then uh, here we have a, a, a big satellite office in Buenos Aires too. The company is populated quite heavily, people like me, you know, spent a few decades in, in industry and quite experienced in looking at different things. So I think our sweet spot is the ability to look at projects, whether they be for a developer um, or indeed from a, a lender, and kind of home in fairly quickly on the sort of six things that might keep you awake at night. Um, so it, it is that blend of kind of uh, technical and, and uh, commercial work and many years in the industry, which enables us to, I think, um, provide that kind of added value. Uh, and the other thing we, we do, which um, thankfully doesn't feature too strongly in the carbon world yet, 
is in the realms of um, uh, expert testament uh, for disputes. So, as I say, you know, contractually, uh, the business models for carbon capture, sequestration, and so forth are, are only just developing. But in time, I'm sure this will be a, a feature too. There's a lot of reasons why I was keen to have you on, but I, I definitely am interested in the, the view that you can have as a sort of cultural newbie when you move to a, especially a city like Houston, which is like the epicenter of all things energy in North America, certainly in the US. When you think about net zero and energy transition and decarbonisation, all these phrases that get bandied about, what, what is it that you are seeing as as a you know someone that has experience in both markets, Europe and North America? What's, what's what are some of the differences that you're observing? Yeah, well, that to, to me, that um, cultural difference and, and you know differences of approach is, is probably one of the biggest features of how people view things here. As again, as you know, having lived so many years in the UK and Europe, uh, where one is used to seeing references to climate change and decarbonisation every day. You know, popping up in every realm of life, um, including the media, obviously. Uh, here in the US, um, you, you don't have that sort of decades long reminder, daily reminder of the importance of, of carbon and um, the carbon value chain going forwards. So, um, so from, a, from a starting point, um, people are looking at uh, the challenges of, of carbon and climate change very differently here without that sort of decades long um, you know, reminder that, that you, know, you get through the sort of societal pressures and dialogue. Um, and the other feature of um, US industry is of course, it's very, very self-reliant. Um, People rarely look to government for solutions. In fact, um, most companies and investors would actively avoid things which involve any kind of government uh, involvement. Uh, whereas, of course, in Europe, um, a lot of the decarbonisation agenda is being driven by policy and support, which is true here to some extent as well. Um, the, uh, the other interesting feature here, I think, is... Um, this uh, question of uh, federal versus state. Because I think when I first became involved in the energy sector in the US, probably back in the 90s, it, it kind of surprised me how little um, federal policy really affected the, the kind of everyday um, energy investments on the state level and the extent to which, you know, independent kind of state initiatives were, were actually much more important. So we're still in that realm today. Um, for example, if you look at what California is doing, it's, it's very, very different from many other parts of the US and arguably much further ahead. Um, but equally, you know, some of the federal initiatives which are receiving you know, quite a boost from the current administration are beginning to have an effect as well. And obviously one of the biggest of those is the 45Q tax incentives, which I'm sure we'll come back to talk about a bit more. So this kind of um, self-deterministic approach of um, rolling your sleeves up, you know, looking at what needs to happen to make a project work from a kind of sustainable investment perspective, 
it's um, you know it involves uh, private equity, for example, um, you know major lenders, project developers. Um, that there is this kind of drive towards a sustainable economic framework as opposed to looking at it from the point of view of uh, subsidies and um, grants and that type of thing. Very, very different. So it's, it's interesting hearing hearing you talk about those, those sort of differences culturally, the sort of the level of the kind of ongoing conversation, which you're right, we do get a lot more ongoing conversation about all things climate, so I think in, in UK and Europe. But one of the, one of the differences that I find interest, or one of the observations I make that I find interesting, is that I I associate the states and Canada and North America in general as being all about commercial opportunity. So it, it interests me that not only are we perhaps in a different place than you might think, because of cultural and just general media differences in how things get discussed, but I still find it interesting that the commercial opportunity isn't something that that has been pounced on more. You know, there's so much IP going to China, even Middle Eastern companies and, and all sorts of other national organizations around the world. I, I don't know if you have a, an observation on that or... No, and um, maybe just to sort of clarify my, my earlier comments, I mean, part of that kind of self-reliance that I talked about is, is to do with, you know, creating a commercial money-making venture. And um, so it's very interesting if we look, you know, locally here in the Gulf Coast area, um, I think last time I counted up, there were about 30 CCUS projects being actively pursued. Um, you know, everything from, you know, uh, a small group of investors who found themselves with a depleted gas reservoir that they think is potentially useful for CO2, you know, through to um, entities looking to build, you know, carbon capture equipment adjacent to industrial plants. Um, so, and, and I also mentioned the role of private equity and a lot of what's happening at the moment in the US reminds me so much of the shale gas boom of 10 years ago, where there was a kind of a germ of an idea, which seemed like it had the potential to make money. And so, you know, for those people who got in early and chose the right projects, um, they, they made a lot of money, very successful. And to some extent, I think the same is happening right now with carbon. That, you know, there are a lot of projects out there. Um, many of them, frankly, probably have little prospect of, of getting further. But there's a very high degree of willingness at the moment to, um, to lend and to get involved and get a foot in the door. So I think for a lot of the financial institutions who, who are looking at this very commercially, um, there is a concern about being kind of left behind and left out. So projects that otherwise wouldn't see the light of day, I think are being viewed very generously by the investment community uh, because nobody quite knows yet um, where the sweet spot will be and the kind of project to invest in. So if you're a large, New York-based capital fund, for example, with a multi-billion dollar investment in energy infrastructure, um, then putting a few tens or hundreds of millions of dollars down into a project that still might need quite a bit of um, development and um, encouragement to become uh, financially viable, it is still worth doing just for the experience. 
Let, let's look into some more specifics. So if we think, well, you know, certainly in Europe, one of the starting points has been a government-led approach, uh, whether that's the EU or the UK stand, you know, or even the individual governments within the EU. What, what are you seeing in the US and Canada? What kind of approach is unfolding there? And to what extent do you think that is going to be the big driver? Well, I think you'd have to just start a conversation off uh, on the topic of, of 45Q, the, the IRS uh, initiative, which provides a, uh, a tax incentive of between $35 and $50 a ton um, for CO2 capture and use or sequestration. Much as it's um, not necessarily financially uh, as significant as many would like, it is a very clear tax statute. Um, you, you know, you can read the the regulations and determine what you have to do to to get those those uh, funds. And it has been sufficient to provoke investments in some projects that otherwise wouldn't have seen the light of day. Basically, for any kind of capture-ready plant, uh, such as you know ethylene oxide or ammonia. It's a kind of a no-brainer, you know, particularly if you can go the sequestration route and, and capture the full $50. Um, so you can put a project together uh, within that kind of $50 subsidy, if you like, uh, which will provide a, a positive return. Once you get into more complicated projects uh, like hydrogen or particularly power generation, or indeed heavy industry like uh, cement or steel, uh, that... Thirty-five to fifty dollars remains a uh, an inadequate uh, incentive to fully drive the financials, um, and that's one of the reasons why there are various uh, bills going through Congress at the moment, which are seeking to uh, up that potentially to around eighty-five dollars a ton. So, obviously, the the further you push the tax incentive, um, the more carbon capture projects you can push into this kind of economically sustainable uh, territory. But it has to be said that uh, $85 is still insufficient to drive what I would call a, a kind of a widespread take up of uh, CCUS. And what's very interesting at the moment is that the projects that are seeing the light of day typically combine 45Q with something else, like, for example, the low carbon fuel standard credits in California. So this so-called stacking technique, where you can kind of uh, mix and match different subsidies and economic benefits from different sources, is, is one area that um, is receiving a lot of attention at the moment. And coming back to our comments about culture, it's one of the things that um, US project developers are typically very good at. You know, it's the commercial structuring, it's complex tax partnerships and different types of transfer pricing to which essentially optimize the financials. And, um, you know, that's very much been a feature of those projects that are beginning to see the FIDs currently. Um, and, and some of the concepts that it's driving are very, very interesting, um, you know using uh, used chip fat from Europe to, you know, manufacture, you know, zero carbon aviation fuel in California. It's, it's a kind of a value chain that you would have never have dreamt of, but it, it actually works because of the way um, the um, 
the carbon industry is developing. But am I right? I mean, I, I don't want, I'm definitely not an expert on 45Q, but some of the, the kind of early stage disruptors that we talk to, particularly those who are looking at CO2 reuse and arguably therefore sequestration of carbon in a solid form, it, 45Q doesn't work for them, does it? It, it works for large kind of basically those large scale you've got an old well you shove it in the ground type projects it's doesn't apply i believe to all types of sequestration first point is that 45q even though i said you can you know you can read the regulation and uh, establish what you need to do it is long it's complex and there are various um twists and turns to it which mean that um you know you you have to sort of work very hard to make sure you've ticked all the boxes um, but what is true is that um, EOR is a, is a well-established route for the CO2 capture, um, as is permanent geological sequestration. Um, those two carry currently, uh, one carries a, up to $35 a ton um, tax credit, and the geological sequestration carries a $50 credit. Um, one of the debates at the moment in the sort of US government circles is whether EOR should uh, continue to attract um, a subsidy in the sense that it's you're using the CO2, but you're producing another carbon intensive product as a result. But CO2 use in, in different forms uh, is covered, but the, the credits are less than for um, geological sequestration. Uh, as I say, this is all sort of up in the air a little bit. As you probably know, and, and I'm sure as many of the listeners are aware, the Build Back Better bill, um, which is being debated in Congress right now, is, is the one with all the sort of um, carbon-related benefits and grants and incentives contained in it, as well as a, a lot of other government spending that is uh, less than popular in some circles. You know, right now there's talk of, of sort of extracting those sort of carbon related benefits and pursuing those through Congress rather than this very, very broad spending bill, which is proving problematic. Um, so all of that is kind of up for grabs right now. Luckily, I think the, the, the sort of common sense and the policy benefits of some of this um, decarbonization um, effort is is seems to be recognized. And um, I think there's an expectation that something will come out of Congress. Let's we'll see what it is. So you talked about the bill, you talked about 45Q, you mentioned LCFS. Is, are these things enough? Or are you ex are you expecting to see kind of a lot more state by state incentives emerging? Or do you think that's probably not the secret source of the future of all of this in the states or in the provinces of Canada? What's your gut feel? Um, certainly, well, Canada has... Um, pursued a number of um, uh, fiscal incentives uh, recently, which have gone through to support CCUS. And of course, we shouldn't forget that um, this entire body of government policy and support, whether it be in the UK or the US or Canada or anywhere else, is generally perceived as a transitional means um, until there's a sustainable carbon price of some sort which will essentially drive um, private capital to invest. Um, but in terms of other incentives, certainly each state is looking at ways to decarbonize in different ways. 
it's kind of interesting to um, to look at, you know, uh, Houston. You know, very local example. It's a um, it's a city which has um, owes much of its economic growth to oil and gas industry. It continues to be a major hub for oil and gas companies. Also has a growing kind of tech field, much of which is sort of focused around low carbon. And um, amongst many of the sort of key stakeholders in Houston, there is an awareness that Houston has enjoyed this decades long period in history where it's been perceived as a leader in the uh, energy industry. But to retain that leadership uh, status, there is now a need very rapidly to refocus on delivering a, a net zero or low carbon agenda. And, and then, so you turn yourself back and say, well, okay, even, even if Houston doesn't necessarily have a history of doing that, uh, does it have the resources and the, um, the sort of ingredients necessary to, to do that? So you look at, you know, Texas, Louisiana, um, and first of all, you, you just need to get in your car and drive a few miles from where I am now, and you will see a, a kind of a, an ocean of petrochemical facilities of different sorts, um, oil, gas processing, LNG, um, ammonia, hydrogen, you name it. So immediately we have this very big concentration of very high carbon emitting industry, uh, not to mention, you know, the you know, harder to evade sources, you know, like, you know, steel, um, you know, cement and, and other industries which, which exist locally too. Then on the other hand, you've got um, one of the highest sort of global concentrations of um, hydrocarbon rich geology, um, some of which has been, uh, well, all of which has been drilled, logged, well understood, uh, vast amounts of data, and then, um, particularly if you look to the near offshore Texas, Louisiana, you have an array of um, very carbon capture friendly uh, saline aquifers, which present the opportunity to store thousands of gigatons of carbon. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, once you've captured the carbon, you know, storing it is, is less of a challenge. So a lot of the focus in Texas, Louisiana is around the kind of regulatory features of um, making it easier for private companies to invest in carbon capture and sequestration, you know, more so than the direct subsidies for, for the capture side. So, so there, there, are, there are a number of sort of um, uh, structural advantages in, in certain parts of the US and Canada because of this, ironically, this, this very long history of oil and gas production, which equally creates a very fertile platform for a, for a, a much different strategy around low carbon energy. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, if this kind of change of tack and, and this what, what in effect has been a very sudden kind of change for the oil and gas industry to have to accommodate, or indeed industry generally. If, if that change is properly reflected in the kind of leadership and you know, both industrial and, and um, local and state government, 
then you know that there's a really good strong platform to 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 launch into you know low carbon industries in in a relatively cost effective and and rapid way but we'll see because this part of the world doesn't have this long tradition of decarbonization and i think there's a lot of sort of catching up to do in in that area but generally speaking this kind of reliance on commercial measures uh, sustainable investment um, that's what's going to carry the day, I think, um, more than, um, you know, large government-led initiatives. Yeah, I think, I mean, even in Europe, where maybe it may be, or you know this, but to some people, it, it may look like in Europe, government is going to be the driver of this. I still think, actually, the conversations we have with the industrials is much more about <clears throat> pointers to the market for low-carbon materials we will make them pointers to the financiers of low carbon processes, you know, and projects, and we'll do this, you know, those really seem to be even in Europe, it really are the main drivers, it's more as you say that government is the perhaps driving some more in the UK, it's more about the kind of early innovation stage of some of the bigger projects, I don't, I really doubt that the UK government is going to be funding the, the BPT side ticket the whole way through, you know, it's Oh, yeah, and, and although frankly, most of my sort of focus has been in this part of the world recently, um, you know, looking at Europe is, is very different, very interesting to see the different approaches, because the UK government has a strong record in kind of regulatory innovation, which they are applying, I think, quite effectively to the sort of carbon capture and sequestration value chain, and very clearly built around this kind of transitional mechanism to kind of uh, lay the foundations for an industry that will be um, self-sustaining. So compare with Germany, for example, where there's been this um, this kind of more um, belief-driven approach in the sense that, you know, oil and gas is bad, whether it can, you know, whether it can be enhanced with um, carbon capture and sequestration or not, you know, it's just not part of their strategy going forward. So it is interesting how different governments are approaching things differently. Um, and, and the UK seems to be quite a good halfway house, you know, of getting the right incentives, but not necessarily choosing winners. Because this, this idea of government sort of choosing which technologies should be invested in is, uh, is a real anathema to, you know, many people here, I think, where it's like, well, surely it should be the market that determines uh, who wins and who loses. And, um, you know, that's that's very much part of this slight unease about too much government interference. Okay, well, well let's, let's take that commercial thread and then have a look at the, the business models that people are looking at here. We can talk a little more about CCUS in a moment, but I mean, there are other, other kind of business models or opportunities that people are starting to see come together. Again, if you were a betting man, what's your gut feel about what, what are those future core models going to look like, do you think? In, and again, let's focus in on US and Canada. Well, one of the one of the interesting developments over the last couple of years has been this perspective of uh, heavy industry and how to address carbon removal. Because, you know, it's very tempting to say, okay, well, we have a cement plant or a steel plant. We're producing huge amounts of CO2. Um, let's just send our 
exhaust gas is next door to somebody who specializes in capture and then dealing with the CO2 in some fashion. And, um, and so a, a lot of those companies interested in capture plants and capture technologies and onward transportation and sequestration have you know, have approached a number of those sort of large emitters and said, well, okay, you know, give us your exhaust and we'll deal with it. But the further you go down that dialogue, what you realize is that there's this kind of um, very symbiotic relationship uh, operationally between, you know, cement or steel production, for example, and the manner in which the capture plant adjacent uh, deals with the CO2. So, um, Equally for the capture plant, um, any operational changes that affect the, the main industrial facility have a knock-on effect. So um, given the financial significance of um, you know, the sort of primary industrial process and, and producing a, a product and selling it and making sure that those cash flows remain um, uninterrupted, um, the, the idea of sort of delegating carbon capture to, to a third party becomes less and less appealing because the more you go down this route, the more you realize that these two operations are very, very inter, interlinked. So, um, so what we're seeing, I think, is um, a preference for industrial emitters to essentially handle their own capture. In, in, in a way that fits with their core business. Um, but then what we are seeing is the development of a kind of aggregation, transportation, sequestration uh, business model emerging from that. Um, and then, then, of course, we've got this very interesting contractual story, which is emerging. So in, in the same way that um, natural gas production has take or pay, it has gas quality specifications, operating pressures, um, and a, a sort of contractual framework to make sure it all works properly. The same types of commercial agreements are starting to be entered into, you know, between emitters and aggregators, between aggregators and uh, storage facilities. And um, it's, it's kind of early days. And there aren't really any kind of model contracts yet that we can look at. In fact, we're, we're looking at kind of working on some of that at the moment. Um, but, um, but this sort of um, coalescing of um, business model is, is just beginning to happen here and, and elsewhere. And interestingly, um, if you look at some of the um, Again, if you look at some of the recent um, regulatory publications in the UK, they, they too are seeking to create a contractual framework around CO2 handling, uh, which will start to deal with these, um, you know, these, these key parameters and, and ensure that the sort of risk allocation between you know, the emitter and the aggregator and the aggregator and the storage you know, function correctly. Just coming back to what the process industries and that the hard to abate industries that we deal with, the main thing they say about CCUS or most often say is that without really understanding the full economics of 
capture, to transport, to storage, that there's no way, essentially there's no way for them to really make a big plan around that. This sounds very exciting. It could be great. They're maybe open to forms of CCUS as service, but there just aren't, there aren't enough details around what the actual costs based on your location or type of emissions are, are going to be. Is that a long-term problem or is that something you think actually that should become clear in the next 18 months? I don't know, what's your feeling on that? Well, it's a great point um because the the true sort of costs and complexities around carbon capture probably aren't well understood and one of the most frequent challenges that we have as an advisory firm is that um there probably is or there has been a kind of an industry-wide perception that carbon capture is a, is a well-established technology, um, the costs are well understood, and you know it, it shouldn't be that hard to understand. But the truth is, you know, um, th there's an array of different types of capture technologies available at, at, different, so at different levels of uh, te technology readiness. Um, you know, there are, there are promising technologies out there for which claims are being made in terms of the potential for significant cost reductions. But when you actually dig into them, you know, they've been, you know, rolled out successfully at a laboratory pilot level, um, but they, they just aren't industrialized. Um, and another feature which often doesn't get um, fully recognized is the space requirements. You know, if you look at, um, you know, the, um, the sort of layout of a typical large industrial facility, um, you, you might have a cogen plant, for example, which you would have thought would be a very sort of capture ready um, candidate. But it's, you know, it could be sandwiched in between several acres of heavy industrial plants and furnaces and kilns and what have you. So the practicalities of actually um, building a uh, carbon capture plant to, to deal with the cogen are almost uh, overwhelming. And um, another feature which can get um, overlooked is the energy intensity of carbon capture itself. So, you know, uh, you might be looking at a sort of a 10, 10 to 15% um, reduction in power output uh, from an industrial plant um, once you've actually provided the energy for the amine plant or whatever it happens to be. So, um, so these these things all add cost and complexity, and aren't necessarily um, things which you would sort of deal with up front. So the um, I, I refer people to the um, National Petroleum Council study on CCUS. It, it was um, carried out probably nearly three years ago now, but it was a seminal work on CCUS costs and um, economics. And in fact, on, on our Gaffney Klein website, we're hosting a, a kind of cost estimation tool for that. But, um, you know, that will only get you so far, and particularly for more complex industrial processes, um, this question of understanding the costs is, is a major hurdle, which um, the industry is only now coming to terms with, I think. Okay, and then, so if we, we sort of look away from CCUS, then what, what are the kind of, 
the, the next rung or the, the next opportunities to, that you see as being plausible business models of interest? Although it's not entirely uh, moving away from, from CCUS per se, you know, oxyfuels, uh, very interesting technology. So instead of dealing with the CO2 after you've burnt whatever fuel you're, you're looking at, essentially you put an air separation plant in, in advance of the power generation cycle, whatever it may be, and you essentially create a very pure, easily capturable stream of CO2 in the exhaust instead of the other way around. And it's, it's one of those areas where those technologies have never really been given uh, serious thought because the, um, the need to capture carbon from a power generation cycle has never really been as high as it is today. So, you know, oxyfuels, various developments of, uh, of sort of CO2 removal. And then, of course, um, you know, you have the whole other topic, which you know, we probably don't have time to really touch upon today, of, you know, renewables and uh, electricity storage. And um, one subject which interests me uh, a lot because of my background in the gas industry is, of course, the transition towards a hydrogen economy and whether that will be predominantly based on um, natural gas, for example, in the form of blue hydrogen, or whether it will be powered largely from renewables and electrolyzers in the form of green hydrogen. You know, there, there are various points of view on this. I, I think based on a sort of a cursory look at the industry and the technologies, one is very easily drawn down the route of green hydrogen. Um, but as you begin to look at things in, in more detail, you know, blue hydrogen certainly has a lot to be said for it in, in certain parts of the world, particularly where there are plentiful supplies of, of low-cost natural gas. You know, from an industrial perspective, for, for particularly for some of the uh, hard-to-abate industries like cement and steel, um, transitioning entirely to a hydrogen-based um, fuel, uh, obviously, is a is arguably a quicker and much simpler way of dealing with the uh, carbon footprint of the product, rather than dealing with CO2 as you're creating it in conventional uh, technology. Main disadvantage, of course, it, it requires an entire redesign of your industrial process. And, and for plants that are on the drawing board today, it's, you know, perhaps a possibility, but for existing plants, it's not. Well, so then the kind of, you touched on renewables there. The, the other thing that people are looking at a lot is the, is the opportunity for electrification full stop, which I guess then presents the question of, you know, is there enough clean power potential in North America to, to drive that? Is there, is there an opportunity for more of the electricity grid, more of the power generation to become clean to enable a clean electrification of industry is that is that do you see that as a reliable future bet well i mean one of the interesting features of of north america and particularly the us is that it has sort of quietly moved down the kind of renewables route texas for example is a huge um uh, wind producer so you know these things have sort of quietly moved up the uh, the pecking order um, without a big fanfare. Obviously, for, for all these technologies, energy storage is absolutely the key. 
you know, certainly for the, the Texas grid is no different from any other in the sense that you've got this kind of um, critical period early in the mornings and early evenings where, you know, without conventional generation, the renewables just simply cannot uh, keep up with demand. Um, so, you know, innovative ways of energy storage, you know, is definitely one, one of the sort of huge um, potential areas of change. Um, at the moment, although, you know, battery cost is going down quite significantly, um, there, there don't appear to be any kind of, you know, knockout technologies out there, but um, that, who's to say that wouldn't change. But definitely for, for any industry, electrification has to be a, a trend which um, is going to take a, a bigger and bigger uh, role. And of course, for the electricity supply industry itself, you know, looking at a probably a tripling of the electricity transmission and distribution infrastructure, you know, you're talking trillions of dollars of investment, which is certainly outside the purview of our talk today, but, you know, represents a significant constraint on um, the move towards sort of deep electrification. But certainly, you know, North America is interesting in the sense that, you um, Power cuts and grid reliability here is nothing like what it is in Europe. You know, people are used to quite regular power cuts. You know, the the infrastructure being above ground is more exposed to significant weather events, many of which we've seen here. And of course, that's you know, for any kind of energy consuming industry. Coming back to the self reliance point, you know, that's why many of them have built their own cogen. You know, they've got their power under control and don't have to rely on the grid for it. So as a sort of uh, a sort of slight, I guess, a wrap up question or a wrap up thought from you, is it is it a given that North American industry will decarbonize? Is it still a question in your mind as to whether it will? And but what would ease its passage forward, do you think? Um, I think there's a simple answer to that question. And it's the market because um, and I'll give you one little glimpse of, of how this um, can have an effect. So I think it was probably two years ago now, um, the French government uh, vetoed an LNG export contract from one of the Gulf Coast exporters on the basis that the, you know, the, the LNG was based on high carbon intensity shale gas development and so forth. And, um, you know, from a, from a consulting point of view, what I noticed after that was a um, very sudden focus of, of all those management boards, you know, right across all the sort of um, aspirational LNG exporters, a sudden realization that, well, if, if the customer is demanding a low carbon product, then we'd better get with the plan and provide one. So initially, you know, the response to that was to look at um, nature-based offsets as a sort of very quick way of demonstrating to customers and um, financiers that they had a low-carbon-ready product uh, on the books. It's it's had very wide ramifications to you know the types of LNG um, liquefaction technology that are being deployed, and um, then as well as customer demand. You know, the, the other feature, which I think will drive a kind of inevitability about carbon reduction is finance. 
because again, you know, the LNG is a good example where if you don't have a capture ready strategy uh, ready to show your investors, then frankly, you know, you, you won't get any lending um, because so many financial institutions are now requiring it. So between, you know, customer demands and the constraints set by people providing finance, uh, it's hard to see any other strategy but decarbonization. Well, that's quite firm. I, I, I ask it really because it's not, I don't ask that as someone living in Europe looking to North America. I, sometimes I, I wonder here even whether, yes, there's a lot of talk about decarbonization, but I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like the undertow is not so different from the States or Canada in that, that there are still these major obstacles to it becoming a, a reasonable business case, you know, a reasonable market business case. So I think it's, I do think it's inevitable in Europe, but not, but perhaps not as straightforward as, as everyone might, might believe. No. And I suppose, you know, I, I, I stand by what I said in the sense that decarbonization is, is you know, will have to happen. Um, but the, the other side of the coin, which comes back to a number of things we discussed today, is this question of cost, um, because the, the costs are, I think, higher than perhaps the general public would be led to believe based on the sort of media reports that are written about the extraordinarily low cost of renewables and so forth. Once you put in sort of, um, you know, grid stability and interruptibility, you know, the, the costs start to go up. So any meaningful removal of carbon from the energy value chain will have a high cost. And ultimately, that will flow through to people's electricity prices, gas prices, and so forth. And, you know, in terms of what you just said there about the undertow, I think um, there's a certain amount of sticker shock that's going to happen over the next coming decades as the true cost of decarbonization starts to flow through. Okay, well, Nick, thank you very much for, for joining me today. I'm looking forward to hosting you at our event in Houston in March. We're going to be talking about hubs and CCUS hubs there, which is obviously an interesting business model in Europe and an emerging one in, in the States as well. But uh, thanks for joining us today. Okay, well, thank you very much, Alex. Look forward to the event as well. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.